She lives in a lovely neighborhood. If you live there, they say you're living good. Pretty lawns with fancy landscapes. She stares ahead with a blank gaze in her lovely neighborhood. Where the living is good. And good afternoon. This is Mark Gertz coming to you from KMET, and this is Reverse Your Thinking, where we take every subject and turn it on its head. And that was the great uh, jazz singer Angie Wells talking about where the living is good, which, of course, is what we want to talk about, is how we can live where the living is good and improve our situations. And those are some of the things that we're going to be talking about on this show. And one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about today is how to quit your day job and work for yourself. Because, you know, if you want to acquire wealth and you want to uh, inquire, uh, acquire control of your finances and your happiness, many times the solution is to figure out how to work for yourself. And we're going to get into that today. But first, I want to talk to you about something that sort of blew me away this morning. I picked up the LA Times and there on the front page was this article about ExxonMobil that says oil giant shielded climate expertise. Now, many of you, if you um, are a little jaded about corporations and politics, would say, yeah, well, that's no big deal. That's what we would expect. But folks, this is this is mind-boggling. This is absolutely mind-boggling. What it says here in the LA Times is that despite its public denials, for the last 50 years, ExxonMobil worked behind closed doors to carry out an astonishing, accurate series of global warming projections between 1977 and 2003, according to a study recently published. What this basically means is that by the early 1980s, ExxonMobil had irrefutable proof that climate change was real, while at the same time, they said it wasn't. Now, that's astounding to me. And it's astounding within the context of what happened then. Because their analysis added to a growing body of evidence that the nation's largest oil producer recognized 50 years ago that burning fossil fuels was warming the planet, even as they continued to heap doubt onto that idea publicly. The paper that the study was based on also shows for the first time just how precise and sophisticated the fossil fuel industry climate research was. In other words, folks, 50 years ago, the fossil fuel industry, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and the rest of them knew that climate change was real and that burning fossil fuels was a big contributor to that. Now, that's not, that's bad enough. But during that period of time, 
ExxonMobil also spent over $26 million in political contributions, either directly or indirectly. And now, hear this number. They spent over $296 million in lobbying in Washington and state capitals to their benefit regarding climate change. Did you hear me, folks? Almost $300 million spent lobbying that there was nothing wrong with burning fossil fuels over the last 50 years and blocking the efforts of environmentalists and politicians to do something about it. In one internal draft, this article says, a memo from August 1988 titled The Greenhouse Effect, a public relations manager detailed the scientific consensus about the role of fossil fuels in global warming, but wrote that this is what the company should do. They should emphasize uncertainty. An archived presentation in 1989 from Exxon's manager of science and strategy development said, data confirmed that greenhouse gases are increasing in the atmosphere and fossil fuels contribute most, not some, most of the CO2. Folks, that was in 1989. Do you realize that was 34 years ago that the oil and gas industry knew that they were creating most of the CO2 problem that creates global warming. And at the same time, they were lobbying politicians and feeding them information so that they would not pass laws to protect us. I find that mind boggling. I think that that is what reversing your thinking is all about. Because if any of you out there had thought to yourself, well, you know, global warming, it's not 100%. It's people are still making their minds up about it. No, 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 no. It's time to reverse your thinking. Because we now have irrefutable proof that the gas and oil industry knew 30, 40, 50 years ago that we were going to be here today. They accurately predicted the warming trends that we're having now. Now, how does that affect you directly? Well, you're somebody that in the last few days has had a problem because of landslides or mud or rain. That affects you because their studies from 50 years ago predicted a change in the weather. If you've got problems because you've got wildfires around your home, well, that affects you because they predicted global warming 40, 50 years ago. If you can't get insurance, or if the insurance you can get now is two, three, four times what it was before on fire insurance for your house, well, you know what? That directly affects you, and it's gonna affect your kids and your grandkids too. Now, 
it's time to reverse your thinking and get involved and do something about that. So I felt that we needed to start the show with that today, especially today of all days, because if you're not, not aware of it, today is the first Friday 13th of the year. And what that means is that today is National Blame It on Somebody Else Day. Yeah, that's right. That's right. National Blame Someone Else Day. That is what today is. But you have the right to blame ExxonMobil for not informing us 40, 50 years ago that global warming was coming and that CO2 created by burning fossil fuels was a big part of that, okay? But on a smaller scale, who do you want to blame? Blame somebody for something. Today's Friday the 13th, and it's National Blame Someone Else Day. So what could be so bad? Time to blame somebody else for something that's going on. And you only have a few more hours because as of tomorrow, you got to take full responsibility again. So you might as well get that off your chest as soon as you possibly can. Okay. So let's get back to where we wanted to start about how to create wealth for yourself and how to quit your day job. So there's a number of things that you need to do if you want to go into business for yourself. Now, many people start out doing a side business while they're working for someone else. And that's a good way to get started. But while you're doing that, you got to be prepared. You got to get set up to do the things that you want to do. You can't just do it willy-nilly without thinking it through. And the first thing you have to do is you have to make a decision. What do you want versus what do you need? What do you want versus what do you need? Now, do you need to work for yourself? Do you need to create wealth and take care of your family? Yeah, you probably need to do those things. But you know what you don't need? You don't need to spend $5 a day getting a coffee. $5 a day translates to $150 a month. And if you want to go into business for yourself, one of the first things you have to do is you've got to build up a savings fund with at least six months worth of living expenses before you call it quits. That's what you got to do. And if you don't have extra money, then you got to figure out how to use money that you're spending on things that you want versus things that you need. Okay? So the first thing you have to do is you got to put six months' earnings in the bank. You can do that. I have faith in you. Yes, I do. I know you can do it. I did it myself. When I decided that I was going to become a, a broker, a mortgage broker, I didn't just run out and open up a shop. No, I planned things. I set money aside, right? I did what I had to do. And then the other thing I did is I sat down and I figured out how much income I was going to need if I wasn't working for somebody else. You got to sit down and, and actually, you know, make a budget, folks. You got to figure out what it is that you need and figure out, you know, then how you're going to get it. And the third thing you have to do is you have to know your potential to scale, right? Once you know how much you need to quit your day job, it's time to add up that amount against 
what you're currently bringing in from your side job, your side hustle, and what you can expect to bring in once you're doing it full time. You may decide to wait until you're bringing in, in, in exactly what you'll need. That would be nice. Or you can decide to leap, take a leap of faith, and having a little more time to devote to your business will enable you to quickly scale to reach that amount. And you know, that was kind of my, my decision. But I came to the conclusion when I did this that I couldn't do it by myself. I had an idea. I had a vision of where I wanted to go. I, I even you know could, could see it. I could feel it. I could touch it. Maybe you've experienced that. But I still didn't trust myself 100% and I knew I needed help. You know what I did? I contacted the Small Business Development Corporation. That's right, the Small Business Development Corporation. It's part of the Small Business Administration. It's free, folks. You pay for it with your taxes. And you can make an appointment to present your idea for a business to them. And if they buy it, they will put a team of experts around you, like an accountant, a publicist, uh, 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 an internet expert to help you get your business off the ground. Small Business Development Corporation. Look them up, right? Best kept secret in the small business world. Okay, so we're going to take a break and we'll be coming back and meeting our guest for this week, Penny Cassell. I'll tell you more about her when we get back from our break. All right, folks? Thanks for listening. And this is Mark Gertz, and we are back on Reverse Your Thinking. Um, I, have a, I have a fascinating guest today named Penny Cassell. She's, a, uh, she's an attorney that specializes in elder care and special needs law. Um, she's, uh, she's part of the Falcon Rappaport and Berkman um, practice group. Uh, and before she joined them, uh, she established and maintained her own law firm for over 30 years years. Yeah, you, you heard that right. 30 years she was self-employed. Um, and she comes to this profession from a unique background. Um, Penny uh, spent a good deal of time presenting seminars, discussion groups to attorneys and lay people. Um, she strongly believes that everyone, young and old alike, should have information so they can make a necessary plan for them and their family's future. Um, and she emphasizes the importance of protecting assets and ensuring that documents are drafted to reflect the client's wishes. Um, in addition to that, she also holds a master's degree in counseling. So she has a unique ability to be able to take legal jargon and translate it into uh, lay language so that basically you and I can understand what she's trying to say. So please welcome Penny Cassell to our show today. Penny, are you there? I am. Thank you, Mark, for the introduction. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Penny, I was wondering before, before uh, uh, we, we move a little bit forward, maybe you could help me and, and, our, um, and our audience understand exactly what an elder and, and special needs law practice is, what it is that you do. Yeah, so we're a kind of a mix of estate planning, which is usually involved last wills and testaments, various types of trusts, 
uh, but with an added emphasis on the possibility of illness and disability or injury that could lead to loss of mental capacity and or increased medical bills. So we also, um, a big part of the practice is making sure that everybody has a comprehensive power of attorney where they appoint somebody to make generally financial and legal decisions for them should they lose capacity to do so, so that a, uh, a court proceeding appointing a conservator or a guardian would not be needed. And then there's a lot of planning involved to shelter assets from the cost of long-term care. It's a combination of estate planning with asset protection and um, disability planning. Okay, so at, at what age at what age should a person contact an elder law attorney? There really is no age. I mean, we know that very young people, people in their twenties and thirties, are generally not going to be contacting attorneys of any kind unless you know there's a catastrophe, a sudden illness, or something. Very often, younger people contact attorneys first when they have children and they want to name, uh, nominate a guardian in their will. Uh, sometimes people contact attorneys uh, as they start to amass wealth and they want to make sure that it's properly allocated and distributed at death. But mm-hmm. elder law is not just for the elderly, since no one can predict when they're going to get sick or have a car accident, an injury, an illness. And very often, uh, the clients who come to me are not older. They're really coming to me for their parents. So the clients may be younger, and they're coming to me for their parents. The parents may be coming to me for younger younger adults who have special needs. So mm-hmm. it really can be people of, of any age. Okay, so, so in other words, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, in addition to people who are elderly... Uh, let's say 55 and up, um, and, a, and in addition to people who might come to you to talk about an elderly relative, um, people could actually come to you to utilize your services while they're still young in order to have you put things in place that they would use when they become elderly. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I would say two things. Exactly what you said, you know, with the idea in mind that uh, we ha- always have more options when we start before we need, you know, the plan. So planning ahead gives us more options. And second of all, a lot of my clients are younger, and we are doing special types of trusts known as special needs trusts so that we can shelter their assets while still allowing them to be eligible for government benefits. Can you can you can you sort of simply explain to us what what that how the, what that trust is and and what it's all about? Yeah, a special needs trust is a trust that is either established by someone for the benefit of someone with a disability who's receiving government benefits, or it could be a trust that's established and funded with the disabled person's own money. And the goal is the same, and they're, they're both referred to as supplemental needs trusts or special needs trusts. The goal of those trusts is to write it in a way that the money in the trust does not interfere 
with that person's eligibility for government benefits like Medi-Cal and uh, Social Security, uh, Supplemental Security Income, that's income when somebody's disabled under the age of 65, or Medi-Cal for somebody who's impoverished to pay medical bills, that they would not otherwise be eligible if they had assets in their name. The assets could be in the special needs trust, and they'd still qualify while still having those assets available to pay their bills. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. What, what would you say is better, a trust or a will? My preference is always for a trust. Um, I would say, in general, that the only benefit to a will is that the legal fee is usually less. But the, to me, the advantages of using a trust so far outweigh a will uh, that it, it makes the fee be a very minor issue. Okay. Um, I've heard there's something called a, um, a, a, a Medicare something something trust. You know what I'm talking a Medicaid, about? Uh, uh, perhaps a Medicaid asset protection trust. Yes, that's it. Medicaid Asset Protection Trust. Is is that the type of trust you're talking about, or is that something different? Well, when you ask me which is better, a will or a trust, I was not really referring to any particular type of trust other than that it's a, a trust that you prepare during lifetime, also known as an inter vivos or living trust. That type of trust could be revocable or it can be irrevocable, but either way... It's, it's basically considered a will substitute. And one mm -hmm. of the advantages over a will is that it's not subject to probate. We don't have to submit it to the court and have the court approve it. Uh, it's private. That's why many famous people who are very wealthy people, uh, you know, such as uh, Jackie Kennedy, when people looked at her will, they didn't see a whole lot of money there because everything was held in trust and it was much more private. A Medicaid Asset Protection Trust is one type of living trust, the trust that's set up during lifetime. It has to be irrevocable, and it has to have certain provisions in it that make it clear that the person who sets it up has no access to the money, thereby protecting the money in the event that they would need government benefits. Okay, so let's suppose, let's suppose you have someone that's, in their 50s or their 60s, and they're they're sort of getting ready to retire, and 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 over the course of their lifetime, they've they've bought real estate. So maybe they have two or three or four uh, buildings. Uh, some some of them might be single family, some of them might be small apartment houses, and um, um, and they want to qualify. They want to qualify for uh, for Medicaid in case they need um, to go into a nursing home when they get older. Um, can a uh, can an irrevocable trust help them to do that? Sure, that's how we would, that would be a Medicaid Asset Protection Trust, which would be an irrevocable trust, and we could retitle ownership of the properties of the buildings to the trust. Okay, so so in other words, what you're saying to me is that um, even somebody that was middle class or maybe even a little bit better technically speaking, could qualify for, for Medicaid if they set up this kind of a trust? As long as they do it in a timely way, because there are time limitations um, 
when you can do these things. So if somebody is about to go into a nursing home, they may no longer have the option to do that. There is a five-year look-back period for nursing home Medicaid, uh, where Mm -hmm. Medicaid has the right to look back five years and see if there's been any improper, when I say improper, I mean uh, gifting that's not to somebody who the the money can be gifted to. So if it's to an irrevocable Medicaid Asset Protection Trust, the gifting is is most likely going to create a period of time during which the person will make themselves ineligible for Medicaid. Right. And I know know in almost every state in the country that that look back is 60 months, that you have to set up the trust at least 60 months prior to um, uh, applying for Medicaid, correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, and I also know there are some states that have, have slightly different rules, California being one. The look back in California is only 30 months. Um, but, but there are some unique things in, in New York, and I know that you know a lot about New York law as well. Um, is, isn't that right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, how does that, how does it work in New York? I I think basically, uh, what I remember hearing was that some things have a 60 month and some things don't. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, way back before the law changed, it used to be a three year look back unless it was a gift to a trust. And then it became a, a 60 month look back, but it's been a 60 month look back for many, many years. But mm-hmm. one major difference in New York, as opposed to some states, is that there's no look back and there's no pe- for home care Medicaid, and there's no penalty for gifting even the day before somebody needs to qualify for Medicaid in the community. Oh, okay. Well, that's and different. We, you know, the, the, the law has changed on that, uh, but there's extensive lobbying to get but the, because of COVID, the law hasn't been implemented, and there's uh, extensive lobbying to get that law repealed. Oh, is there? You mean in Washington? Well, in New York State. In I, New York you know, State, I'm not, I'm not sure okay. about any place else, but in New York, that's the case. I see. Because in some, okay. in some states, I believe, there's already uh, a penalty imposed if there's been gifting. But that's uh-huh. not so in New York. But, the, you know, the law... The, the change in the law is that there would be a look back and a penalty period for gifts done within that period of time, but the law wasn't implemented because of COVID, and there's a lot of lobbying to get that law repealed. I got gotcha. you. Okay, so this would so it, it, if I'm hearing you correctly, this would be a vehicle that someone could use to protect their assets from the expenses of long-term care, too, right? It would be a way of, uh, you know, getting home, getting care in the home and not uh-huh. having to pay for it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I got you. What about, what about some, um, can, just switching gears for a moment. Can someone with dementia or Alzheimer's um, sign legal documents for something like this? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, there's, there's a presumption in the law of capacity. It's, it's always presumed it's, it's a legal presumption that everyone has capacity. So the burden would be on somebody else arguing that they lack capacity. And mm-hmm. simply because somebody has simply because somebody has a diagnosis 
of dementia doesn't mean that they're incompetent or lack mental capacity because there are all phases and degrees of Alzheimer's and dementia. So somebody with a diagnosis may be forgetful, but that doesn't uh-huh. mean that that oriented person plays the time and they don't know who they are or where they are. Or who They may still be working and they still be paying bills. And they may be perfectly competent, but, you know, they may have forgetful moments. So, so you as an attorney, have you ever had clients that had a diagnosis like that, but you still, but you still felt they were uh, competent enough to sign papers on their own behalf? All the time. All the time. Okay. Um, Have you ever had a situation where you weren't sure or you you didn't think that they had capacity at the time they were were, uh, talking to you? Oh, sure. I mean, there are times where it's very clear and then I would not take their signature. And there are times where I, I might have concerns and might not be sure. And especially if I thought there might be someone out there who might contest what's happening, I would want to get some uh, medical report from a psychiatrist or a neurologist stating that they have sufficient capacity to sign legal documents. Okay, so, so what would be the recourse for the, a person in, in that situation? How could they accomplish what they want um, even though they don't uh, have capacity from a legal point of view just to, to ex- execute documents with you? Well, if they don't have sufficient capacity to execute documents and they haven't signed a power of attorney, which is a document that authorizes somebody to make those decisions for them, then, you know, an interested party would have to go to court and say, you know, I want to substitute my judgment. It's called substituted judgment. Basically, I want to step in and knowing what they want or knowing what I think is best for them, I want to make those decisions for them. And depending upon the state, they would either be called a guardian or a conservator. I see. Okay. So so let me ask you, what, what estate planning documents do, do you think that we should all have? Well, you know, from my point of view, because of the focus on health, disability, to me, the most important document is the power of attorney, because you always want to keep things as private and as inexpensive as possible. So as we were talking about before, if somebody lacked mental capacity and had not done certain things that need to be done, you really would not want your family to have to go to court, have a guardian appointed, spend a lot of money in legal fees, and really have the court make decisions. Uh, about what you're allowed to to do or not do. To me, Mm -hmm. that's the most important thing. I mean, of course, a will or a trust is extremely important, but I put it a little behind the power of attorney because in most cases, not all, but in most cases, well, especially the married couple, very often they own their assets jointly. So even if they don't have a will on the death of one, it's going to go to the surviving spouse anyway. I got you. Okay. You know, and even if somebody's not married and they die without a will, generally it'll go to the children, which would be probably who they would choose anyway, but not necessarily. Penny, you're a a font of knowledge. Stay with me. We have to take a break, but I want you to stay with me a moment, okay? I'll be here. Okay. (laughs) 
And we're back. This is Mark Gertz, and you are listening to Reverse Your Thinking with our guest, uh, attorney Penny Casal, who specializes in elder and um, special needs law. Penny, I, I just wanted to ask you a couple more things. Number one, um, how does somebody go about picking an elder law attorney? Well, you know, it's like picking a doctor. I think you got to ask, ask around, you know. Um, Word of mouth is best, but of course you always want to vet who you're asking, who's giving the advice. You know, your mm-hmm. neighbor down the street may have been happy, but they may have had a totally different situation. I think um, some people who really know um, how good an elder law attorney is are medical professionals, social workers, discharge planners in the hospital. They're the ones that deal with elder law attorneys a lot. I see. Okay. Um, and if somebody wanted to uh, inquire about you and your firm as a as a potential elder or special needs attorney for them, how would they get in touch with you? Well, they can uh, Google us, Falcon, Rap, Falcon, F-A-L-C-O-N, Rappaport, R-A-P-P-A-P-O-R-T, and Berkman, B-E-R-K-M-A-N. So we have offices um, in California, in New York, in Florida, New Jersey, maybe other states. I'm not even sure. But on the website, it would give the information uh, as, as well as the contact information. And, and, and what is the website? It's Falcon, Rappaport, and Berkman. Dot com. Well, okay. if they Google, if they Google Falcon Rapport and Berkman, they would find it. Yeah, okay, I guess terrific. I don't. I don't. Yeah, you're asking me the URL, and I don't even know it. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Well, listen, uh, we really appreciate you taking some time to be with us today, and um, and that was great information. Um, and um, can I can I uh, uh, sort of put you on 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 hold? to come back to the show sometime in the future? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Mark, and anytime. I'd love it. It was a pleasure. You were terrific. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. All right. So in the final minutes of our show, um, there were a couple of things I wanted to to talk with you guys about. The first thing is going back to how we started today about going into your own business. There's this article I came across by Anthony Moore, who's a CNBC writer. And the title of his article is The Real No BS Way to Quit Your Job and Work for Yourself. And here's the thing that he says. There's there's two things that he says that I think are really, really important. And to be perfectly frank, I, as someone who has essentially done all of this, would agree 150%. The first thing he says is that the the secret to success as a small business person is consistency. It's doing the things that you need to do day in and day out and showing up for work. And the second thing he talks about is the fact that you need to stick with doing the things that are hard and unsexy. In other words, when you go into business for yourself, We think we're going to be able to do just the things that we want. And unfortunately, that is not always the case. There there are frequently many aspects of of a job, of a small business 
that require you to do things that frankly are boring. Really, really boring. But your ability to do those things consistently is going to determine a great deal about whether or not you can be successful. The last thing I want to talk about today is you and your kids. I know that seems like a big switch, but I want to help you reverse some of your thinking about you and your kids, because if you're thinking about going into business for yourself, your kids are a, are a big issue in that. There was a study that was done 40 years ago called the marshmallow test. Does anybody remember that? The marshmallow test. It's, it's a little test that was done with kids. And here's what the test was. It was a test to see what kind of self-control children had. And what they did is they put a kid in the room with a marshmallow and they told the kid, you can eat the marshmallow anytime you want, but you can sit here and not eat that marshmallow for 15 minutes, you'll get two marshmallows. That was the test. My recommendation, if you've got a child under the age of five, give them the marshmallow test. Find out where your kid sits in relation to self-control, because that's going to determine to a great degree how you're going to parent that child. And it's also going to determine to a great degree how that child is going to do in school and in their future work. Now, they did find out in this study that if your child at five doesn't have a lot of self-control, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that they're going to be that way as an adult. People change. People grow. That's exactly what's going to happen in your child's situation, too. You know, there's an old expression, nothing's constant but change. However, you want to find out as a parent at an early age where your child's self-control is at. Right? Are they going to eat that one marshmallow or are they going to be able to hold out for 15 minutes and then get two? Now you know what kind of kid you got. Now, as a parent, you can figure out what are some of the things that you need to do to help nurture that child along. So those are my thoughts for you today. Let me remind you, let me remind you that today is blame someone else day because it's Friday the 13th. It's the first Friday the 13th of 2023. So you better hurry up because you only got a few hours left to blame other people for your problems. After that, it's all back on you, folks. You are responsible for the things that happen to you. And that's why you need to reverse your thinking about the way you see things and separate back from fiction. This is Mark Gertz, KMET. And guess what? It's not next week, but I'm back. This is Mark Gertz. This is reverse your thinking. So if you were turning off the station, you're going to have to reverse your thinking because folks, I'm still here. So I'm going to blame my assistant. That's why 
I ran out of time because this is blame somebody else day. So I'm going to blame I'm going to blame my 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 uh, uh, associate producer, Rhonda here. Rhonda, this is your fault that I ended the show five minutes early. No, it's not. It's my fault. It's my fault, folks, because I take responsibility for everything that I do, even when it's wrong. So um, I was talking to you before we got off the air about the marshmallow test. And I want to follow that up by talking to you about money and your kids, money and your children. What are the things that you should be teaching your children? Once you figure out how much self-control they have by giving them the marshmallow test that we just talked about, what are you going to do with them in terms of helping them to develop the habit, the wealth habit of being able to get out of spending every nickel and dime that gets in their pocket? Well, the first thing you should do is you should start with physical currency and teach your children about banks. That's what I say. You know, when my son was young, when my son was was young, five, six, seven, we lived near the bank that I, I uh, did my banking at, and I would bring him with me. Now, this particular bank, they gave out free cookies. They baked cookies every every day, and there were free cookies there. So my son got in the habit of, when he when we were going to the bank, he's thinking cookies. Now, isn't that great marketing? Because... My son's in his teens now, and every every time I tell him I'm going to the bank, you know what he says? Dad, get me a cookie while you're at the bank. So he's got a very positive attitude about banks. In addition to that, you need to you need to work with money with your children. Teach them how money works. You know, one of the things that that happened with my son is that you put a dollar sign in, in front of any uh, any amount of numbers. He can add those numbers like like nobody's business. And I think most kids do that, too. The next thing you have to do is teach a kid about savings and about sharing and about spending. And one of the ways you do that is with an allowance, whether the allowance is tied to chores um, is an individual decision for each family. But one method that works well is to give kids a flat allowance in exchange for basic expectations that you have of them, like making their beds, feeding the household pets, and so forth, and then giving them the opportunity to earn more with bigger chores, like mowing the lawn or handling the family laundry or maybe, you know, uh, filling and emptying the dishwasher. However you deal with allowances, you should emphasize that saving and sharing are just as important as spending. Let me repeat that. You need to emphasize that saving and sharing are just as important as spending. And that's great advice for adults too. Kids can set aside money for savings and for charity in separate piggy banks or envelopes. Uh, Financial planners with people that are in uh, financial straits, they always use envelopes. You take the cash and you divide them into envelopes. Um, Older kids can use a bank account for setting up a portion of their allowance. That's why you want to take them to the bank and make them expect that they're going to get a cookie. Third thing you can do is help kids to learn to comparison shop. With the Internet today, kids are bombarded with stuff, with the opportunity to spend money on things. And they just do it 
willy-nilly. They don't think twice about it. Uh, and you, as their parent, need to show them that you can shop to get a better price. You can do it virtually online, or you can start taking them to stores and start showing them how to compare, how to compare prices, how to compare quality. It's a really important skill set. You know, there's, there's, there's one thing to be said for having money you can throw away. There's another thing to be said for throwing it away. Okay. You don't want your kids to throw away their money, whether they're five or 25. And lastly, encourage older kids to earn extra money. In other words, when kids get to be in seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th grade, encourage them to get a job doing something in the neighborhood, maybe collecting recyclables, um, organizing and setting up a family garage sale, doing yard work in the summer, uh, snow shoveling in the winter, if you have snow in the winter, depending on where you live, um, babysitting. By the, time, by the time your child is 14, 15, 16, there's no reason why they can't be babysitting other kids. Um, doing housework for elderly people in the neighborhood, especially with the way things have been after COVID, with people being shut in. Um, if your child has a particular talent in one, um, one subject at school, maybe tutoring is a good thing that he might be able to do, or pet sitting or dog walking. Any of these things is gonna help your child to earn extra money so that you can help them learn how to save it and invest it and create wealth. And last but not least, I think it's a very important that you teach your children about credit in age appropriate ways. And there's many, many ways to do that. Going back, going back to the marshmallow test that we talked about before, um, if you're middle schooler wants to buy something that's relatively expensive, tell them they can save up or they can borrow the money from you with interest and a loan due date. Give your kid a little loan for a few dollars. Let them experience the cost of money. And last but not least, you want to teach your child the benefit of giving, the importance of giving. I think it's very important to start, um, to start charitable giving at a young age to make it part of your child's uh, lifestyle to get them to think outside of themselves, to get them to think about helping the community and helping other people, not only with their time, but with some of their money. Anyway, hopefully we've helped you reverse your thinking about some great things today. I'm Mark Gertz. This is Reverse Your Thinking on KMET. See you next week.